Hi everybody, today is Thursday, February 16th, 2023. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neuroscience Research Podcast. We're back after a slightly longer than normal winter hiatus. We were doing faculty searches, which preempted our regular schedule of visitors and everything else that we do. And so after the lengthy and, and exhausting series of faculty searches, it's great to be back to our regular schedule. So today we're talking to Rakhez Kayad. He is a professor in the Department of Neurology in the George and Cynthia Mitchell Center for Neurodegenerative Diseases at the University of Texas Medical Branch, Galveston, not too far from here. So, and uh, Rakhez studies neurodegenerative diseases, the pathology underlying them, and the potential treatments that may someday make them obsolete. Hi. Hi, Charlie. Thanks for coming. So with us today is Aaron George Perry, local neurodegenerative diseases expert and longtime colleague of Rakez. I think yes. I understand. Thank Thanks you. for joining us, Thank George. Thank you. Really a pleasure to have you here. Hope your Thank hand you. is okay. Something bad happened? I slipped in Coimbra, Portugal. Wow, it happened in Portugal. Yeah. He's the only thing exciting. You had to come home with a bad hand the whole I way home. Fr uh, fractured ah. the finger. Okay, <laughs> me, I'm your host, Charlie Wilson. And uh, Rakez, I, I'm hoping to learn something about tau protein today. And so tau is one of these proteins that always comes up when we're talking about Alzheimer's disease, and, uh, and it is uh, the primary component of the neurofibrillary tangles, as I understand, and it's also present in lots of other neurodegenerative diseases. It's sort of ubiquitous when the brain is in trouble, I guess. And you can correct me on that if you want to. And, uh, and it's present um, in lots of different places, but not always in the same places, I guess. And I know that we're going to talk about how tau is bad for the brain, but I'd like to start with just what tau is and what's its normal function for the healthy brain. Why does the brain even have tau in the first place? Oh, okay. That's pretty... I wish I have a good answer for you, what's tau? Because even biologists, cell biologists, are still puzzled what the biological function of tau. The only biological function we always go back to is it supports the microtubule in the cells. So wherever there is microtubule, assemble and disassemble, and you know, these are like the highways for cells to transport things. Tau is supporting, is one of the proteins supporting the microtubule. And the whole idea is that in the neurons you need these things to assemble and disassemble fast, so there is high concentration of tau protein. And the original connection to Alzheimer's disease is that when tau is associated with microtubule and it gets hyperphosphorylated, then it this it dissociates from the microtubule and it kind of forms these aggregates, which we see in Alzheimer's disease and supernuclear palsy and Bix disease and others. Almost 22 diseases, you can find tau aggregates. So, for the knockout tau, what would happen? That's another great question. <laughs> you put me on the spot. No, so, okay. no, no, it's cool because it's one of the family of proteins. So, 
I think many labs, we have the knockout mouse for tau and it's viable, so it lives. However, there are recent reports showing at later age in these mice, you can see some motor deficit or some deficit, but you can knock tau down. So Are there compensatory changes? Not to my knowledge. No change in MAP2? Or I think it's, there must be, but I don't think it's well uh, investigated, like which compensatory mechanisms. But all biological systems are redundant. So the key is the knockout mice are viable and you can study them and you can look at them. And tau is in many cells, not in the brain. I think there is in the heart, there is big tau, they call it. So it's another isopor. big tau? Yeah, it's called big tau. Check it out, but it's a big tau. So, <laughs> so and tau splicing. comes, alternative uh, splicing. That's one thing also. This is when I said the biology of tau is still a mystery because at least it's, it's the alternative splicing of tau releases different isoforms. And one hypothesis was, for example, in Alzheimer, you see two of the isoforms aggregating, the 3R tau and the longer, a little bit longer 4R tau. And one hypothesis was, if you can have more 3R versus 4R, you may help with the disease, but all these are unknown. So. I would rather have not no tau aggregates at all, but but yeah, the, but the biology of tau is still a mystery. So in its normal function, in which it's interacting with the microtubules, it's monomers that do that. Or? Yes, it's the monomeric tau. At least, to the best of my knowledge, it's monomeric tau. So uh, I don't know if there is uh, uh, dimers. If, if they are di functional dimers, they may be due to the disulfide bonds because it has two cysteines, but to my knowledge, it's monomeric tau, which is functional. So this, the, the fundamental thing that goes wrong is the formation of oligomers. Is that correct? Or, or are oligomers also normal and normally there? No. Okay. So that's that's another trick question. Okay. So so so. Okay. So he's going uh, deep in it. So if you are talking to an amyloid person, oligomer is an amyloid aggregate, which is not like the oligomers when a receptor assemble in oligomeric units. So you don't think this is part of biology? So it's not at least. To my knowledge, no. For example, there are some evidence saying synuclein tetramer is a functional tetramer, but these are functional oligomers or multiple units coming together is different than the amyloid oligomers. Amyloid oligomers mainly, these are the at least toxic aggregates of a protein when you have mainly beta sheets and still flexible regions and they clump together. So oligomers in our terms, they are clumps of proteins, uh, not, not, multiple. not multiple protein uh, units coming together. But in the tau oligomers, those are uh, the toxic ones. Those are toxic ones. Yeah. And how many? Like, At least in our hands, the ones we focus on 
Okay, let me just, so people know. So for the protein, there is the monomer. And assume there is the fibrillar or neurofibrate angles. In reality, you can put millions of, of monomers, units, in the fibril. Fibrils are highly ordered structures. It's almost like uh, spider silk. It's an amyloid, like it's a fibril. So with the fibrils, you can back so many protein units. The oligomers which we study and we focus on as the toxic scrambled aggregate, mainly two, which is the smallest, two to three at the lower end, and eight to 12 at the upper end. Now, somebody may argue, but you don't have 16, not 12. Yeah, we can have 16, you can find 16, 24, but their toxicity becomes less. So basically for a protein amyloid aggregate, in order to be toxic or biologically active in a toxic way, you have to have the size right, the surface hydrophobicity now is being implicated. So there is more than one. So size of aggregate matters, hydrophobicity of the surface matter, stability of it matters. So all these factors together but if you have an oligomer which is really large, it becomes less toxic. What is the difference between toxicity and physiological activity? <sighs> toxicity and physiological activity. Of the aggregates, I don't think the aggregates are, I think the aggregates are non-physiological. You know what I mean? It's just like, I don't think Tau forms amyloid oligomers for physiological. So all element. these proteins form aggregates that are all <laughs> detrimental. I really don't want to venture into the functional amyloid field because it gets tricky because there are functional amyloid, but these are like in bacteria. Bacteria can attack other Organism. You mean like curly fibers? Yeah, curly fibers. You can do these and curly oligomers and uh, stuff. But I think we're talking about the on the surface of bacteria. Bacteria, the amyloid, and it's controlled. So the bacteria use the oligomers which we study, or the aggregates, the fibers which we study in Alzheimer. Bacteria can use them as a biology biological mechanism to attack other and. Uh-huh. Make, make, for example, uh, make bores in their membranes, make them leak, etc. So, so this is what he refers to. But well, I, I, I'm asking the question more: if you have several proteins which have the capacity to be toxic, toxic, wouldn't there be tremendous evolutionary pressure not to have that structure? Yeah, but that that been looked at, especially at the edge of the beta sheet formation. So yeah, that, that's been looked at. But I think people don't... What is the answer? People don't know, like, let me just finish this thought because I think it's important. Like, you can count the proteins associated with diseases, uh, tau, a beta, alpha-synuclein. But if, I, if you pick a protein of your choice, any protein you came across, and you give it to me, 
under non-physiological conditions, I will convert it to you to an amyloid and it will mm -hmm. be toxic. So the idea that an amyloid can be formed under non-physiological conditions. Now in humans it forms, you know, especially with aging, they form. Doesn't mean they did not form before and the cell cleared them. But if you give me any protein, not a beta, not tau, of your choosing, I can convert it to amyloid. And this work was pioneered by uh, Chris Dobson, the late Chris Dobson at uh, uh, Cambridge and others. The other thing also people don't realize that before we used to say, okay, you need at least two, three amino acids to form amyloid. The work of Yehud Gazit at University of Tel Aviv now showed like even you can form amyloid, toxic amyloid from metabolites. So basically, the idea of amyloid is a process. You but mean non-amino acids? Non-amino acids, yeah. Yeah. The first, first they settle on the dipeptides, they can form amyloid mm -hmm. structure. But now it's extended to the metabolites, and we saw it too. So, but we've just been saying that tau is toxic when it's not an amyloid, when it's not forming the fibers, but when it's just when it's forming the oligomers. Yeah, yeah. So, so really, from a tau perspective, maybe the amyloids are are not the culprit, or not really the important thing to know about. The important thing to know about is why the oligomer kills things. I think that is that is one thing we we are excited about. So these the, the oligomer toxicity have okay, oligomers may have similar mechanisms of toxicity. So if you take a beta oligomers, if you take synuclein oligomers, if you take tau oligomers, they may have similar mechanism of toxicity. And we looked at them before, others are looking at them. One of the hypotheses was the oligomers insert in the membrane and then you can have ion dishomeostasis or even sometimes if the membrane may be with the cholesterol, high cholesterol or low cholesterol, different uh, membrane composition, these bores can even uh, lead to protein dishomeostasis. So, yes, so, so there is a hypothesis. I worked on it, others worked on it, like maybe the different oligomers have similar mechanism of toxicity. So that is correct. So sometimes people talk about tau as a misfolded protein. Is tau a misfolded protein? No, that's, that's a, like just, I mean, it is originally doesn't have a structure. And I think tau doesn't have a structure, not because, because it has so many functions, so it needs to be flexible. So it's one of these like flexible so proteins. And when you say, tau can, can yeah, so basically again. in reality, in reality, <laughs> when you say misfolded tau, actually you try to fold it. You start to induce more beta sheet uh -huh. elements in the tau when it forms the oligomers and the fibers. That's, that's a technical term people uh -huh. use. And also people, uh, I think some people don't uh, know that 
in order to, for a protein to form an amyloid, you don't have to go all out and disassemble the native functional structure. You can change just few amino acids to form the initial beta sheet and uh, hydrogen bonding and the rest of the That's protein. That's what, what I was thinking yeah. in terms of evolution, there'd be a lot of pressure to not have those yeah. amino acids. Yes. But that, is that isn't true. That's not true, but I cannot. I mean, if you look at amyloid beta, it occurs in higher animals. Yes, it does. Not in lower animals. Yeah. So, uh, Like dogs have amyloid deposits. So I'm still thinking about tau, though. I'm still thinking yes. tau is uh, yes. uh, not a misfolded protein. It's just an oligomer. So it could the oligomer could dissociate go back to work doing whatever no no i think i think we are not on the same wavelength the amyloid oligomers are harder to dissociate so yeah, why so, are they hard because the conformational change they're not beta you said they're not beta pleated right i th there is parts of beta pleated sheets but so, not to the same extent as the paratelical filaments no not not to the same extent but you must have a core that is stabilizing these oligomers. And then you have the flexibility of the other part of the protein. But those are all just weak interactions, correct? But weak interactions are biologically relevant, you know? Like, but they uh, should be reversible, like Dr. Wilson is suggesting. I, w I was just... No, I like that idea. No, I don't think... I don't think... I think, we are not, uh, I think we are not on the same wavelength. Between the two tau units or the three tau units which form the oligomer, there is some hydrogen bonding in mm -hmm. one stretch, and most likely it's in the C terminal or the microtubule binding domain. But we cannot speculate till we get the so, cryo-M so structure. These things are stable. Yeah, what you're saying is they're, they're stable. stable. They're not They're stable as together, but. Uh -huh the coat or the outside is still flexible. And I think this is why it can interact with many receptors, for example. It can interact with many proteins. And this sometimes will say, okay, if the oligomer adapt this surface conformation, then it may bind to uh, an insulin receptor or uh, heparin sulfates or, you know, it can, it can do a lot of things. So there is some element of surprise uh, when you work with oligomers that they may bind different receptors and this is due to the flexibility of their surface. Some some of them like bind to toll receptor, rage, etc. Is the... Um that surface is transformed. There's some people who think that the N-terminal region is stripped off when you, when you actually have more C-terminal in the final PHF. Yeah, I really don't work personally on truncated or just the amyloid uh, forming part of tau because I think you're missing a lot. I mean, it's informative. Some people think it's physiological, though. Yeah, I don't know about physiological. But well, I was just thinking about also the same kind of thing about the transition from good tau to bad tau. <laughs> Does it actually mean the molecule has been altered? 
or is it a reversible interaction? That was my sort of my original. Mm -hmm. The molecule is altered. I don't think it's reversible. Uh, it can get degraded, and there are mechanisms, you know, the protosome. Uh, protosome unit 19, I think, was implicated, especially with these toxic oligomer, uh, autophagy, you know, now you can find these oligomers in exosomes. So where they were, she, are they being shipped for some degradation or something? We don't know. So there is degradation. But I don't think once you form the oligomer. Does the oligomer transform into paratelical filaments directly? So this is what I mentioned, if I remembered, Did I mentioned. Did you cover that? I, I don't. I think, so with oligomers, there is on-pathway and off-pathway. So there is on-pathway to fibrils and perihelical filaments. Yeah, you can transform them. So Do they form trans... Do they have to partially disassemble in order to form the other structure? I mean, there are two th schools of thought. So some people suggested they have to disassemble to monomer to form, but this is not for tau, for other amyloids. But I think it's more about the conformational changes to adapt to the fibrillar structure. And then they add monomers yeah. after. So, so for example, even in fibrils, most of the fibrils which, we, which people see the pictures, uh, they are these almost uh, dehydrated, uh, unique shape. But in reality, fibrils also have a fuzzy coat. Mm -hmm. You know, and they, if you hydrate them, you can see them fuzzy coat. And most likely... And those are not seen by cryo-EM, right? Yes, yes. But you can you can see that sometimes, that there is a fuzzy coat. By regular EM. Yeah, yeah, by regular no, EM. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, 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 if I want to guess which oligomers may be worst or loosely using the the term disease relevant, I would say most likely it's the off pathway. Till the cell ability to convert them into fibrils uh -huh. is impaired. Because I think tau aggregates at very early stages, maybe even in teenagers, so tau the, aggregates. So the idea is that the, that the fibrils are kind of a sink that can as suck a sink. up all of that stuff. At one, the, up to one stage, yeah, up to one stage, yeah. I think, I think the first step, because we are uh, the cell producing so much tau and tau is degraded, so the first step is degrade, degrade, degrade. But if it forms misfolded monomer or oligomer which cannot mm -hmm. get degraded, the easiest way is to back into fibrils. And as I mentioned, a fibril can hold tens of millions of units. So that's the easiest way. So it's a protective mechanism at the beginning, but after a while, it may cause issues. So it sounds like the problem is the cell is just making too much tau. Could we just downregulate tau? I mean... We don't know that much about synthetic rates of tau, do we? I mean, I know people <laughs> did that, but I think, it, was it ever clear? So uh, when they did radio label for a beta, I think it was easier to detect or to decide the turnover of a beta, but it turned out tau has a longer time life than a beta, and this is why when 
I don't remember. Which studies are you talking about with I APTA? think it was it was in Washington University. Oh, those were the CSF? Yeah. yeah what, no, what even blood. Me? Even blood. Yeah, well, I don't think that's very reliable. But still, there is there, there is another factor. There is, is, a, is the whole brain level. But there is a another factor is like how long these things can survive. No one gets insight to hybridization or the more primitive type things where you just look at expression level. I don't know. I think you're. I think you're leading me into territories which are not relevant. I think because the relevant thing, for example, to see if neuronal activity means you have to produce more tau, because that's key. For example, if a neuronal activity needs requires producing more tau, then when it's at least this is relevant and, and to the you, disease. And you know the microtubule number goes down during aging and during Alzheimer's disease. You don't I, believe that. I don't. I did that. I don't believe that. I think it's. But I, it's, other people found the same result. Yeah, but but I think the whole idea is that we go back to tau production. So if the neuron is hyperactive, do we need to produce more tau? Most likely, yes. And then after that, what happens? So, so the flux of the production versus degradation is key for tau. Or could it be that you have an imbalance in it compared to microtubules? In Alzheimer's disease, microtubules are like 80 to 90% less. I don't know. You don't know? I don't know. I, okay. I, cannot, I, cannot I know. Say, I, can't I cannot say anything. anything. So if that's true, though, that means tau's got nowhere to go. It ought to be interacting with microtubules that are not there, and that would make an excess of tau. tau but it yeah. should be degraded in a healthy yeah. cell. It should be. So that's the whole idea. <laughs> tau is, is easy to degrade. And that's been so, shown by other people's yeah, so, studies at uh, the tau so, max. I understand. <laughs> yes. so you don't really buy that. as that. I, That makes perfect sense. Yeah. I, I, one, before we get done, I'd really like to bring up this issue of propagation. Because everything we're talking about sounds like tau is a, is a cell phenomenon that, that yeah. really doesn't have that much to do with the network. But and a cell somehow dysregulates tau and starts making a lot of tau oligomers, and so that's and bad fibers, for that yeah. cell. And so now, but it's it's often said uh, that that it, tau can somehow propagate down a cell and induce tau in the next cell down or in yeah. other places nearby. So what does that mean for for those oligomers to induce oligomer formation in some other cell? Yeah. So so I think. Forget the human prion diseases, even if you look at yeast prions, so it's known that if you have a seed, you can do conformational, it can induce conformational changes in the other protein and it propagates. So, so, so the propagation, the yeah, so there are, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but the whole idea is that in fibrous, most likely it's a templating. But Make, but this is true for this templating is true for every other polymer that's in a cell. It's true for cytoskeleton proteins. Sure, cell. but how about oligomers? 
Because oligomers mainly they induce conformational changes. And cytoskeleton there. And this was studies a long time the the mechanism how it induces the conformational changes. It was studies. So if you just had monomeric tau sitting around and you dropped one of these oligomers in, it would start forming. Yes, every molecule, every every molecule will adapt the new conformation and it will become oligomers and actually homogeneous oligomers. But that also is true for microtubule. All you need for propagation then is for the stuff to be transported down the axon and released. Yeah, and this is at least this is. I mean, there is there is the distal spreading versus the local spreading. Distal spreading is what you described. So basically, if a seed is transported via the axon to another region of the brain, then you start propagating the other region, and this is the and distal that spreading. Fits the the pathology, the progression through the brain fits as if neurons connect. But what about... I don't know about being reliable. But what about brain injury? That will be will start as localized spreading and then it will spread from that local area. What if a neuron died and there's some aggregates there or a cell died? So, so, so we cannot just be transfect on the ax- axonal or distal spreading because there, there's so much to know because if you have tau oligomers in one brain region, which is connected to three three brain regions, are all these three brain regions going to get tau pathology? Is it regional dependent, the, the propagation? Is it cellular dependent? We don't know. So... Yes, as a basic mechanism, the seed will go there, and in theory, it should corrupt that tau in that area or in these cells in that area. But there is regional and cellular yeah, specificity. That, uh, church institutions of uh, northern right. Nigeria at the time did have contact. Oh, but we have another podcast contact on. with uh, the Church of Rome, and so whenever there was reforms, like uh, when there was being I'm sorry. I was listening to a podcast myself this morning. Uh, those were kind of just being drip-fed into northern Spain right. while Andalusia. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, it's okay. You are international. It's a uh, podcast on podcast. Okay, it's Professor on... Barry is an international uh, ambassador for Alzheimer and uh, the whole world. So that's... I'm thank sorry. you. No, I'm it's sorry. fine. I don't want us to quit without talking something about what are the prospects for therapy of tauopathy. So I know that there are lots of, Alzheimer's disease has lots of things you can think of different ways to attack it, but if we're just thinking about it from a tau perspective, how do we cure tauopathy? I think, personally, I would go either immunotherapy or polymorph or strain-specific immunotherapy or uh, aptamers some molecular approaches. That's one thing. Having said that, you know, there is antisense oligonucleotide is being tested. This goes back to your idea. Just lower the damn tau completely and see if you prevent it. But, you know, there is issues with the delivery, etc., with these antisense oligonucleotide. Now, another high, uh, idea, which I think now it's not going to be valid, was to convert, for example, for Alzheimer, 4R tau to 3R tau. But now we know that 3R is as bad as 4R could be, or at least it's still bad. 
So there is the small molecule approach. There are clinical trials that disassemble tau aggregates or prevent. I think... For disassembling? How, How does that work? I mean, there are some data showing that there are small molecules that disassemble the fibrils. Oh, I see. So you could just... Fibrils are polymer. Try a zillion different molecules. And yeah, find yeah. one that causes the oligomer to fall apart in vitro. Yeah, but, but the, the, the problem, That's if you disassemble the fibrils, are you going to get uh, Even more. more or toxic or you get inflammation? So so I would I think the best approach to think about is to try to find the aggregate which forms early in the disease and targeted as early as possible. You know what I mean? It's just like, don't let it till the disease progress and you may have different structures, many aggregates and then. But if, you, if we can find the early aggregate and we can specifically target that, that would be the so ideal approach. what would approach. be a way to target that? Is that an antibody? I think antibodies are being used, you know. You said that some of them had benefit? I'm not aware of that. The Tau one, no, not to my knowledge. But at least they are promising. Promising, people are not dying. Promising is not stage three. Promising is stage one and two. I mean, you mean they didn't yeah, die? Yeah, they did not die. But also, oh, there is no... That's a pretty low... Uh, Pretty low barrier, but but why why I think you have. We have oh, I mean, because the amyloid people. So but we have to be optimistic. Okay. When Tau immunotherapy started, 2007, the first preclinical uh, okay. testing compared to 1999 for a beta. So the Tau's field is catching up. So I'm not I'm optimistic that there will be. But if we were to enumerate the possibilities, one would be to downregulate Tau by attacking it at. Like with antisense RNA yeah, or yeah. something like that, and another one would be to try to dissociate the oligomers. Yeah, uh, and maybe they would then or convert the oligomers into larger non-toxic aggregates. Turn them That's, into non-toxic yeah. yeah. Aggregates. What if uh, what if the amyloid's um, response to the problem, and you're disrupting the response? I, you mean the amyloid formation is a response mm-hmm. to a problem, like inflammation. Yeah, I think, but still, uh, most of the inflammation in the brain is associated with uh, protein aggregates. So you, you won't only, have, but there is some. There is the no, astrocytes okay. have amyloid and have uh, astrocytes tau. actually protect the amyloid. I mean, protecting in which way? They lay uh, chondroitin sulfate on it so the microglia can't remove it. But that goes to the early stages, and after that. What do you mean the early stages? Like, if, if, you, if you think that blacks and tangles. Whenever there's amyloid deposits, there's uh, chondroitin sulfate laid by astrocytes. Yeah, because they are activated by amyloid. Mm-hmm. Better than anything else. And when they get yeah, activated, so chondroitin tells the microglia they can't degrade it. So, George, are you saying that that's a therapeutic approach somehow? To- ramp that up? No, I'm just saying this is part of the biology that happens uh, and it actually is making the plaque into scar tissue. I think it's being used as a therapy. But the question was about therapeutic. Mm -hmm. I think it's still unclear upregulating the immune response or downregulating it is beneficial. Or the removing amyloid of tau or amyloid will be beneficial. 
Yeah, I, I don't, yeah. I don't so sign for not, this, uh, but that's George's uh, Of course, opinion. if we can't do something, Sorry. we can't tell whether it's good or not. Right? So you have to do the, the test. The first thing you have to do is figure out how to get rid of tau, and then you find out whether getting rid of tau is helpful or not. Correct. So, um, so I was just asking about how to get rid of it. Yeah, rid that's of what I answered. It's yeah. helpful. But yeah. the, the, you can do uh, antibodies, aptamers, small molecules. Uh, you can activate the protosome, uh, autophagy degradation. There's a lot of so methods. A lot of these yeah, there's a lot of approaches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. So we can look forward mm -hmm. to a day yeah. where we don't have any more tau than we want. And then we'll find out whether... Exactly. I agree. And one other thing. I think the tau... Uh, tau is being used as a biomarker for the efficacy of some clinical trials or yeah. in the blood, actually. That's also exciting now. So people measuring tau 217, tau 181. And also there is even evidence from the clinical trial that this can be uh, to evaluate if the trials are beneficial, or there is, at least, if there is target engagement, let's not overreact. Okay, well, thanks very much. I, You're I think that's you. a happy note thank to you. end on. Thanks, Ricky. And uh, George, thank you, George. Thank you, and, Charlie, uh, for a nice Thank event. you, yes. and thank you. It was a nice uh, visit, and I enjoyed all the discussions.